Hello, and welcome to episode 46, part two of Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing what is necessary to be a successful designer in a contemporary, screen-based, interactive world. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. In both part one and part two of this episode, we will be discussing the ins and outs of UX and UI boot camps, how boot camps compare to traditional four-year graphic design programs, and the similar struggles that both boot camps and traditional design programs face when training emerging designers. Today's guest is Mike Josie. Since 2001, Mike has devoted his career to nurturing and leading design communities. Currently, he serves as partner and community director at Designation, the leading UX and UI design boot camp, where he helps prepare students to become conscientious, skilled design leaders of tomorrow. Mike has lectured across the country on community and careers in design at the DSVC National Student Show and Conference, Frontier AIGA Design Educators Conference, the Hike Conference, Design Exchange Boston, Phoenix Design Week, Brooks Institute, and to a host of organizations. He does occasional projects under the name Listening and Speaking. He lives in Chicago and no longer fears snow. You know, this is just for me to kind of like get a understanding of like how how your program works and others that are similar. So mm -hmm. personally, I think oftentimes like substantial visual design learning occurs not in the making but during critique mm -hmm. when students see examples of both good and bad design and have you know um instructor or facilitator however you want to call it led conversations about those differences of what's good and what's bad so how do students learn to critique design when they spend that the duration of their design essentials training, and that's that design essentials term is specific to designation, um, training, uh, participating virtually. Yeah, it's definitely a tricky concept to understand virtually, and I think you know we you you we all certainly see as educators see people who struggle with accepting critique and being able to understand critique certainly at first, but then even sometimes later on <laughs> in the process. At first, they really learn by watching. Um, our design essentials and virtual phase creative directors do a great job of building up to it. Um, they do check-ins with the full cohort right away. I think even the first day of design essentials and then two more times that week, our creative director, James, um, you know, handles that, that check-in with the full cohort. Uh, also with individual teams because they're working on teams right away and they're doing individual projects. All of the projects that they do in the virtual phase get graded. So they're submitted and they're graded and those grades come with an explanation for what that grade means. They also are able to get pretty serious one-on-one -on -one time with James who does Design Essentials and Katie who does the virtual phase. They really set up environments also where designers can provide critique in their smaller groups and teams. So every design team has a Slack channel that's dedicated to it, that the creative director is a part of, that the graders are a part of also. And they're keeping an eye on the conversations that happen there and making sure that it is uh, useful, it is constructive to make sure that um, those conversations are happening in, in really useful ways. 
uh, and making sure that they can provide critique to each other and feel comfortable to do so. So there's a lot of, you know, rule setting at the, even at the very beginning of this is what it means to be, to, to critique constructively. This is what it means to seek feedback on your work. And this is why getting critique on your work is important. So a really big principle that we practice here is the ask mo- method of critique, which is actionable, specific, and kind. Um, we have a pretty official rule that the only criticism allowed is constructive. So it cannot be something that is just crapping on a piece of work, but it has to you know, discuss what is working about it. It has to go specific. So you cannot talk about the piece as a whole, but you have to focus on the individual piece or part of that piece that is working or not working and explain why and how to, you know, ideas for how to improve it. Make sure that everybody knows that it is not personal. It is there to improve your work and make you have a more uh, useful experience in the program. So we believe that if everyone around you is practicing these things from day one, we believe that you are much more likely to pick it up and practice it too. Um, And sorry, because I was in the middle of typing up a note, so I just want to see follow up and if you already covered it just say i already covered it um do they do that in a group or is it one-on-one it is both uh so there is one-on-one with the creative director to make sure that especially in the early stages when they're really fighting that uh imposter syndrome you know of should i be here oh shit should i be here oh shit um i paid how much for this (laughs) <laughs> uh, that, um, you know, their, their fears are really being calmed and they're able to, um, really learn the knowledge that's necessary to become a functional designer. So taking baby steps, really making sure they learn how to crawl. Um, there's group. So they work on teams, especially in the virtual phase, actually the virtual phase UX teams are, are working on a project together. They have to meet virtually. They, you know, do Google Hangouts. If they're in the same city, they meet together. And at the end of the virtual phase, they actually present their work to a panel of guest critics. And that all takes place over video chat. So they're getting critique okay. even at that time. And then it's cohort wide. So they make sure that, you know, the creative directors are giving lessons. They are speaking with everybody that there's an opportunity to uh, get and give feedback one-on-one in a small group and then, you know, cohort wide. So by the time you get to the in-person phase, in theory, critique is not something to be afraid of. Yeah. And this is one thing, and and it's not, it's not specific to boot camps. This is, you know, any, any design programs at traditional four-year universities that are doing online courses have to work around this. But there's like a there's just something magical about when you're like in a foundations level course or like early courses on where like the students, all of them put their work on the wall. Mm-hmm. And then it's like the instructor, you know, you have them come up and talk to them about, you know, you know, like just, you know, talk about their think thought process. And then you start like pointing out, like you see how this design element is making somebody do this. And then you can like kind of point to like all fit, you know, like all 10 or, you know, 15 or so of the pieces and say, like, see that they're, you know, you can like start pointing out the pattern, like they're all doing it this way. See how this one doesn't let you do that. Mm-hmm. And I just personally can't wrap my, there's like so much learning that's going on by just having everybody sitting in this, seeing the same thing at the same time, listening to the same conversation that I just can't wrap my head around how online technology lets you do that. And I think yeah. that's just my own ignorance, but <laughs> Yeah, definitely those opportunities to, you know, I, like like you said, um, put put up work on the wall, have everybody gather around it and talk about it. Um, those happen 
way less often than I would like mm-hmm. them to happen at designation and probably in any boot camp because that's probably one of those things that we just had to remove from the curriculum to make sure that the implementation of those hard skills and soft skills was happening quick. So that definitely happens on a group level, but cohort wide, it's a lot harder to do that on a regular basis for yeah. sure. And and it's not just boot camps. That's like any any program that is online, whether it's accredited four year or whatnot. I just like I said. To me, I haven't, but I haven't tried because <laughs> I, I have the luxury of I don't have to. But when I'm forced to, that's going to be the one thing that I just can't kind of wrap my head around. Yeah. So, um, so I like that you have a distinct. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm getting this from kind of like looking at the you know looking at the website. I, I like that you have a distinct UX and UI path mm-hmm. to com to com that lack of specialization that a combined UX UI bootcamp may have. Mm-hmm. So I also struggle to find enough time and credits to teach both. And, you know, it makes perfect sense that you would also have that same problem. Like it's really hard to do both. So mm-hmm. how much, what's the balance? So how much UX do your UI students learn and on the flip side, how much UI do your UX students learn? I think there that happens in a couple of ways. And um, I think the curriculum, certainly for, for the time that they have in person, um, is relatively less compared to, you know, a, uh, a more university education. Um, a lot of that happens by osmosis because, um, in design essentials, before you've picked your track, everybody is together and you're sort of in this giant stew where, excuse me, where, um, everybody is, you know, talking with everybody else and they're sort of discussing what, what makes them really excited about UX or UI and where they're going to go. All that's really great. Then they separate into their individual tracks for virtual. So they're in UX and UI. And when they come in to the in-person phases for immersion, client, and career, they're all literally in the same room together. And so there is a UX team over here and a UI team over here. And, and they are able to, uh, socialize a lot and just, you know, sh- share the same resources and otherwise be, um, be there to talk and, and commiserate and share notes and everything. I think on a, on a practical level, we reinforce that understanding that you have to be aware of what happens before you get your brief and what it's going to happen after you finish your work for the immersion phase project for the client project. Actually, the immersion phase project is really cool because uh, it's a separate project for the UX teams and a separate project for UI teams. And the UX prompt will have, you know, every team answering that prompt differently with a different focus, whatever. The team that is the strongest, that produces the strongest uh, outcomes and the best story about how they created their work, that their work will actually turn into the prompt for the next cohort's UI project that maybe was a little complicated for me to explain, Mm -hmm. but, um, it's actually really, it's really great because they are able to work very closely with the preceding cohorts UX team and have that handoff and say, here are the wireframes. You will always, you know, you, every UI team with every project will get a set of wireframes. They will get 
you know, the research. They will get an understanding from the client about what has been done on this work before you're about to touch it. Um, and so that's really, really important. Um, we, we, we make sure that there's always workshops and there's always an understanding for every designer that what happens after you finish your work, it has to be prepped for handoff. So UX teams have to annotate their wireframes. UI teams have to redline their, uh, their, their screens and be able to, you know, prep that with notes for the developers that work, you know, will not be will not be coded at designation. It will be coded by the client. It will be done somewhere else. We've actually partnered with some dev boot camps that are here in 1871 or around in Chicago where we've handed, you know, we've had a client say, we want UX, UI, and dev work. We'll handle the UX and UI. And then another dev boot camp will handle the dev. So we've we've handed off work before to other boot camp teams. So that's really great. I think certainly um, we don't expect fluency. For UX designers in UI, we don't expect fluency in for UI designers in UX, but we expect conversational, you know, language. We expect you to know how how it works, and we expect you to know where this work came from and where this work is going. I love. I I think that's amazing that you're doing the having a different having one cohort hand off the UI uh, handing off the UX to the UI. Um, but the only one thing that I could see kind of like problematic about that is that then you're siloing them. And so you're not like having or do you or is there at least like a sort of a bridge so the UI team can go back and say, hey, UX cohort. I need to I need you I need to pick your brain a little bit about this, you know, what you handed off to me. Yeah, that opportunity is always available okay. to to the UI team. But you're right. I mean, it, it was a previous cohort, the, you know, different cohorts are in different rooms, or if the cohort has graduated already, they can be harder to get a hold of. But the the expectation is they will always be available for questions. Okay. I mean, that's and, and that's generally what is happening in the industry. I mean, mm-hmm. well, it depends. Every every place is different. <laughs> um so some ask, you know, oh God, you know another thing that I like too that you did that I this is the biggest knock for me on four-year programs or t- university is just like being able to collaborate between departments. Mm-hmm. It's just logistically, it's a pain in the rump. I mean, because we most universities have a design program. Most universities have a human centered or human centered design program. And, and most of them have some sort of computer sciences program, getting all three together to collaborate at a university is next to impossible. Yeah. Where you can just like do it on a daily basis and like, eh, it's no big deal. <laughs> That's just like a, an amazing experience that you could have that just, we can't replicate in four year universities like I wish we could. Yeah. Um, so kudos to you. <laughs> well, thank you. I think, um, you know, we are, we are a startup, you know, we're, we are an educational entity and we're a professional experience, but we're also a startup and we have, uh, eight full-time employees. We have eight or 10 part-time employees. We have other people who are associated with the program and even less than a part-time capacity. Um, but really those eight people, you know, we get in the same room, two or three times a week. And one of those times might be over beer on a Friday happy hour, but we are really close and we, we, you know, make sure that we communicate with each other because we know that James who runs the design essentials 
program that he his work directly impacts Katie, who runs the um, the virtual phase, which directly impacts Doug, who runs the immersion phase and directly impacts on and on all the way down the line. And even the work that I am doing at the end of the program in the career phase, mm -hmm. sometimes we need to backward design it yeah. to go all the way back to DE and say, we need to now make a change in the curriculum all the way at the beginning to prepare you for what needs to happen at the end of it. So we are in communication all the time. And that uh, willingness, that um, playfulness to be able to say, we can and we do need to um, update the curriculum, be willing to update the curriculum and be sort of ruthless about what we're seeing that's working out there for graduates with hiring partners and, and managers that um, that feedback and that experience that they're looking for really is is going to directly impact the way that we talk with each other about our curriculum. Yeah. So um, back on my my scripted questions. Mm -hmm. uh, so some aspects of UX are hard to teach, like, you know, those quote unquote uh, soft skills mm -hmm. such as empathy. But just, an empathy is another word <laughs> that I don't really particularly like. But because to me, it's just don't be an asshole. Uh, <laughs> but OK, so empathy, which I define as, you know, being able to synthesize and discover insights out of a body of research. And then design thinking, another, you know, soft skill, which I think of as like finding problems beyond the obvious ones, beyond the ones that you were told. Mm -hmm. So how effective are boot camps in teaching these soft skills in a compressed time frame? We have found that boot camps in general are not good at it. And that I think is because of the length of the program and the relative depth of the of the curriculum. We have worked incredibly hard as a team to implement those soft skills as part of the curriculum. So even from day one, you are getting tremendous exposure to those soft skills, um, you know, uh, uh, like interviewing and teamwork and communication and critique and play um, and all of those things that make, again, the experience of being a designer really valuable, not just understanding design and being able to practice it, but we have known the whole time that we've existed that it's those soft skills that make somebody a better candidate as a, as a professional designer than somebody who just goes through the motions of understanding how to design and understanding the, the tools and the programs that are used. So it's been incredibly important for us to bake in soft skills all the time. And we're doing lots of supplemental workshops. We um, journaling is something where we actually put on the calendar every single night. You need to journal about the day. Uh, so talk about what happened today that will come in handy later when you're doing your case study. Um, but also, you know, journal at the end of the week and talk about how did you grow this week? This is the end of your sprint of your weekly sprint. Um, what happened over the course of this time? So you're starting to synthesize that information. And, and that synthesis is such a huge word for me um, because analysis and synthesis are really the cornerstones of making a good case study, of making a good story about how you grew as a designer through the experience of being a designation. And if you cannot analyze those experiences on an individual level and on a collective level and synthesize all of them together and say, here's who I am at the end of all of it, then the experience was not meaningless, but pretty close to meaningless. If all that you are is a collection of those hard skills, then you're not going to be somebody who can really nail an interview, who can be seen as a really excellent 
teammate, potential teammate for uh, a bunch of designers in a room who can solve problems, um, who can communicate with with clients, who can admit failure. All of those things, you know, happen through experience and they must be baked into the curriculum. So that's something that, you know, I'm not sure if other too many other cohorts do. Um, we took a, up some pages from Dev Bootcamp, which is probably the, you know, one of the greater um, uh, dev focused boot camps out there. You know, they have emotional intelligence. They really, really focus on mm-hmm. the EQ of every designer in their program. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's something that's been really important to us to really have. Yeah. Um, I like that term emotional intelligence versus empathy. Mm. I just like that. It just feels like, yeah, anyway, I like it better. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's funny because, um, I wish that there was a, I could think of a better word than empathy, but it's something that I actually started describing to designers here when I got here, that that was, that's the designer's secret weapon, mm-hmm. that empathy is the thing that, that defines us as professionals and as educators, because we put ourselves into the shoes of everybody that we meet, not just the clients, but our teammates and creative directors and everybody else. But it's really not our secret weapon anymore. It's our primary weapon, especially in this day and age when empathy is not at all valued on a governmental level, on a societal level that we have to fight back with with that empathy. And I think you're right that emotional intelligence is something that it's way more than empathy. It's it's the understanding of how empathy rolls into all these other soft skills that that make you a stronger human being, um, that we, you know, really need to make sure that we teach and that we make sure that our designers practice. Yeah. I mean, to me, I, I kind of describe it as, you know, everybody should have empathy. That's a basic human, every good human being should have empathy. So it's, it's, so when you remove that, like that from that perspective, it's really, there is a process to understand understanding it that you go through that we do really well as designers that I that's the unheralded thing that we do is this like that like you said that investigation that like of other people (laughs) we put a process to understanding people (laughs) that you know other people just don't have um, for whatever reason whatever it is about design so um back on these are my scripted questions again Mm. so teaching is hard uh when we go into it, um, unless you, you know, went to school for K through 12 education and you actually learned how to teach, um, when, you know, when you're trained as a designer, that doesn't mean you're a good teacher of design Mm -hmm. (laughs) and universities, you know, mine included have entire teaching and learning centers, um, devoted to best practices and teaching and, you know, how to write pedagogy and, and how students learn. So how do you empower your, I don't know what the term is, mentors, facilitators, professors, teachers, um, how do you empower them to be, um, to, you know, be better teachers and how to be, um, how to imp- help the students? Yeah, a couple of ways. Uh, first is uh, we, um, we call all of our teachers creative directors because that's the role. I mean, they, there's definitely 
education involved and in imparting skills and knowledge, but their main function is to, you know, guide you on a professional sense to get to the, to the point where you can be self-sufficient as a designer and, you know, understanding the, all the bigger concepts of being a designer. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, you know, one of those terms that we use, you know, again, moving away from student and mm-hmm. teacher, things like that. Um, I think one of the, one of the things that's, uh, really important is to understand is a fair number of our, creative directors are graduates of the program. So they came through as designers where they had a particular skill set. Some were involved in traditional design before that. Some were mm-hmm. designers and developers. Um, again, Doug, uh, who is our immersion phase creative director, he was the guy I mentioned who had 25 years experience working at Disney and Mattel and Girl Scouts. Um, so they, I think as, as sort of pure empathy, they really understand what it takes to be successful in the program and how to take the most advantage of it. And they understand where their instruction or they, the instruction that they received was strong, was weak, could be improved. And they're able to, uh, you know, iteratively improve on it with every cohort. So the other factor I think that makes our creative directors pretty successful is knowing that there's a balance between being a teacher type and being a creative director type. And that combination is really rare. In fact, we have, you know, worked with, I don't know how many, maybe 10 or so guest instructors and people who were around for a few weeks or for a single cohort where they kind of washed out of the program because they didn't, they were either coming from a straight creative director background and they didn't really understand what it took to be for the, to have a teaching side and to employ that teaching side, or they came from a straight teaching side and didn't really understand how to be a good creative director. So finding those people who have that balance, who are excited to display that balance and practice it is a challenge. And that is one of the reasons why, you know, I think we've been intentionally slow to grow. We have, you know, these two particular tracks, we have the part-time leads to full-time program, and we're staying relatively small for the moment because we understand how difficult that balance is to, to get and then to maintain. So we hold on to these people who are really successful at that balance really, really tightly and make sure that they have what they need to succeed. And someone like me is, you know, I, I have had teaching background, but I really have valued much more the professional background of design management and creative direction and making sure that it's not necessarily about what I produce, but what about uh, what the designers under me are able to produce. And so when you come into it with that mindset, I think you succeed a lot more. Yeah. So we have the, we have some resources that are out there. We have some mentors who are professionals who work with our creative directors and make sure that, you know, they are staying abreast of what's going on in the world, but they also have an opportunity to, you know, learn some about how to be stronger creative directors and how to be stronger instructors. Yeah. And that's, that I'm it's that's pretty cool that you brought that up about the like the balance the internal balance because mm-hmm. I kind of identify like I know I need to be I self-identify that I need to be a little bit more of that creative director so I, I have like this maybe like a 70 maybe a yeah maybe 65 you know 45 balance in towards the teacher Mm-hmm. Um, where the other, you know, I have a colleague that's probably like a hundred percent on the, you know, uh, the creative director side of the spectrum. Um, and so it's, it's always good that when you have that like balance 
between all your instructors that if you know it, it does let you get away with somebody's like a 100% one thing and you're 100% the other then you can but to, together the two of you get that right balance if that makes yeah. makes sense but no I'm, that's cool that you they're cognizant of that because that's a real thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's a big challenge, and you know we we've certainly seen the you know the terror in uh, creative directors' eyes that first week or first couple weeks when they come into that environment, and it is it is not going to be a teaching straight teaching experience, and it's not going to be a straight creative direction experience. It has to be somewhere in between, and if you are not able to grasp that quickly, then it can be really hard to stick around for multiple cohorts. So we're really, really lucky in the the team that we have right now to be able to do that. Um, yeah. So that leads, actually, that's perfect. That leads into my next question um, is it was basically, um, I, I already asked the first part of it, which was how, how much time do you spend reworking? And you you've answered that, but how do you know if something is wrong or if something isn't working? What mechanisms do you have built in to put up the red flags? Yeah, we're fortunate that we are able to know those things pretty quickly. Uh, we seek feedback from the full cohort at the end of every phase. So they're talking about, you know, the recent past and, and their experiences there. And we ask them really to kind of open up and talk about um, anything, you know, if it's the curriculum, if it's the projects, the team structure, the supplemental workshops, whatever that might be. We also make it clear that they can speak with a staff for any time they have concerns. And like I mentioned with Design Essentials, that happens right away. So they know that if they have a question that they need to speak with James about, James is available two times a week for one-on-ones. He's also, we're all available on Slack pretty much all the time. So people can come talk to us and we encourage them to do that. You know, we have staff meetings twice a week and we're able to talk about how those curriculum changes uh, affect every phase of the program. Um, what I find interesting is there might be designation graduates listening to this uh, recording who came to the program in 2014, 2015. They would not recognize the curriculum today whatsoever. Um, and I think we all on, on staff here love being drivers of that change um, because we we really believe in the mission of designation. We're really driven by the same motivators, which is to honor the commitment, commitment that these designers make to change their lives and really start a career in digital design. So again, going back to the idea that we're a startup, again, we're eight people and um, we are a startup and in many ways we get to act like one. So there are a lot of great things about understanding when something, when there's a red flag that's raised, we will do everything we can to make sure that it's resolved, it's corrected, that it you know, comes up e either never again or in a more productive way for the following cohort. Yeah. So anybody who's listened to this podcast knows that I've complained a lot <laughs> about finding the right balance between visual design, front-end development, and user experience. I've also struggled, you know, to find the best way to introduce projects to students, how to make students, not make them, but what's the best way to have students conduct research. I mean, how do you make like learning some of these things permanent? So what are, what are some of the things that you've struggled with uh, from cohort to cohort that you just like, man, I want to solve this, but <laughs> it just can't. Um, because our cohorts overlap, especially the in-person phases, there tends to be a comparison between 
what you get in your cohort as a designer and what the previous cohort got. <laughs> um, if there's a change in that scene as somehow negatively impacting their experience, there can be some upset feelings about that. Yeah. I think uh, the removal of dev from the curriculum was a big one. The last cohort to be able to quote unquote major in dev, um, you know, uh, they felt like they had a certain experience and the, pre the subsequent cohort, you know, felt like they had been robbed of that experience. Um, we also established career, the career phase as a specific phase um, for those two weeks. Um, you know, before that, it was a little more haphazard, the structure of being able to produce a portfolio in a set amount of time. So, you know, the cohort that the last cohort to not get the career phase, you know, was was somewhat disappointed about that experience. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, every major change to our curriculum is something that certain designers see and want for themselves. And sometimes instead of focusing on having a really great experience for themselves and making the most of that, you know, they do want to complain about the next cohort's experience being different. That's sort of human nature, and it's also sort of a result of being, you know, cooped up in a room with people in your cohort and being close to everyone. The next cohort is uh, in the next room over, and, you know, being close to everybody in a physical sense, people talk and they complain, and sometimes those complaints are not constructive. Um, and we encourage them to get back to the task at hand and make sure that, you know, you have long-term goals that you are trying to, to reach. We are here to help you get to those. So there's a lot of work to be done on the specific project in front of you, but also those longer-term projects that you have. The next cohort actually will come in and they don't really know what the previous cohort went through. We don't compare cohorts to each other. We don't talk about what came before. We only talk about the experience that they're getting in front of them. Mm -hmm. So with their current situation, uh, you know, after a few weeks, any particular struggles of why can't I have blank tend to go away, which is which is always kind of fascinating to see that happen. I think anything else that we struggle with is pretty universal, um, reminding people to stay passionate about design and helping them, you know, achieve that that passion and maintain that passion, making sure they stay physically healthy. I mean, not getting sick in this room that's somewhat windowless teaching them practices that they <laughs> keep long into their careers, teaching them to embrace ambiguity, um, adapting to the sprint structure, helping them not get overwhelmed or having meltdowns, forcing them to go outside and take a walk around outside. You know, some of the, I'd say a lot of those things. God, I used to live in Chicago, so it, it <laughs> sending them outside to walk along the river, right yeah. where you're at, oh, God, that's the, that was my favorite spot to go walk. Well, second favorite, but. I digress. <laughs> um, so I've got a, just a couple more questions, but um, there's one that I that popped up that we haven't come back to that I might as well ask now that doesn't relate to anything else. And it has to do with the you said that. So the work that the students do with these startups, is it mm -hmm. pro bono and or is it paid? And how do they feel about doing, you know, kind of giving, you know, a giving away free work if they are? Yeah, so it is entirely pro bono when it comes to the relationships that we set up with those clients. Um, you know, being again, being surrounded by a thousand startups in this space is really inspiring to understand how design and UX and UI and how understanding your users is going to be directly applicable to the success of your product. So we don't really have any complaints from our designers about doing work for free. 
the, the you know the, the the truth is this is something that differentiates designation from almost every other boot camp out there. There are a couple that do it now, but for for several years we were really the only ones who did that, and that started from even back in our first cohort. We it was one of our primary values to provide that real world experience. So we we really see that the people in the program do understand and do value it as a significant differentiator, as something that gets them much more value for the investment that they pay to come to designation. Um, I think everybody almost universally values it as an idea that the work they do is going to live out in the world and has the potential to be something big. I mean, there are startups in 1871. Uh, a great example of this is a startup called Guard Llama, which I have to make sure to say that because those two words should not exist in nature next to each other. But there's a startup called Guard Llama that was we did UX and UI work for um, maybe a year ago, and they were just on Shark Tank and just got some sort of big investment from one of the sharks there, and you know they were on na national TV, and they are going places. And the work that we do, we did for them, is a part of that experience that's going to be now seen by many, many more people. With this investment, they'll be able to take their product to a much larger audience. And that's very exciting for the designers who participated in that work. That's really exciting for the creative directors and us on staff because we saw that work get implemented. Um, our creative director actually for that project just got contacted by Guard Llama and said, hey, there's actually more work that we're going to need to do based on this bigger rollout. So we'd love to work with you guys again this summer. So opportunities like that are really, really exciting. Um, and that's not going to be the case for every client. Some of them, you know, some of our clients are a single person who says, I have an idea for a startup, but I need to understand my um, my audience. And so the project will just be UX research or we will work on some significant stuff and they will say, well, I really appreciate that, but funding hasn't come through yet. That's something that I will be working on in the near future. So they know that our designers know that their work may not be immediately applied to the real world, but someday it will be, or it was done with these very real world objectives in it. So the stories that they're able to tell in their case studies and when they go on interviews to say, this client that has a weird name because it's a startup that has two people in it um, actually used us. And actually, we did things for their users in mind, for their 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 staff and their uh, employees in mind, and we improved their experience. And that's something that is inordinately valuable for the experience of um, how to be a designer when you get to the interview stage and the professional stage. Yeah, no, and it totally is. But it's something, and I've polled my students over the course of, and this is at traditional four-year universities. Mm -hmm. um, I've polled them over the years, and a lot of them kind of resent doing work for free. And it's something that I, I, I just struggle with it because I know the value. And also, too, on the grand scheme of things, you know, are you – are you devaluing, are educators devaluing design by seeking out free work for these learning opportunities? And, you know, it's a it's a real serious debate mm -hmm. um, that I just, you know, it's one that I just don't know what to do with. But I think, I mean, and this is me just thinking out loud. I think one thing that helps in your case is that the fact that it's kind of like upfront, this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. they, so they're completely, I mean, if a student doesn't know that they're going to do that when they enter into your program, they obviously didn't do their research. 
Yeah. No, it's it's impossible to to escape. I mean, we put it front and center on the designation website and it's part of the interview process. So we make it clear that that's a big part of it. Um, one of the you talked about the, you know, understanding one's own value as a designer. Yeah. And that's something that's really, really, really important to me personally and something that we have put into the curriculum significantly. Um, you know, we ask our designers to understand their values and we say, um, it's not necessarily right or wrong that free work is bad. What are you getting out of that experience? Are you getting are you getting really valuable experience? Are you learning a new program? Will you get a really excellent case study or portfolio piece? There may be great opportunities that come out of working for free. It may have the the um, the potential to turn into a very lucrative opportunity later on, or you might get stock in the company, whatever that might be. Um, you know, there are can be advantages to it. So don't you know, that, that goes back to the ambiguity. There is not a right or wrong answer of is free, should I do free work or not? Um, because we, we really encourage people to understand what is most important to you and what are your deal breakers. And when you understand those, you are way prepared later on to answer a question like that when it comes up. Yeah. And no, and that's been my mental gymnastics away around it is the fact that, you know, one, they're not, um, if you as a designer are saying, you know, like present them, hey, this is the bill that, you know, this is what this would cost. So you're educating them, like, what is the value of what you've given them for free? And if they mm. honor and say, like, hey, we can't pay for anything, but hey, if this gets funded, we'll give you stock options or, you know, hey, the best we can do is give you a six pack of beer. Mm. You know, it's not like it's, you know, some Fortune 500 company trying to get something for free. I mean, just like so that they know there's value. So. That's anyway, that's my mental gymnastics around it is that the client knows that there's value to it. Yeah. <laughs> and at the same time that um it's, you know, they're valuing it. So I think that's like the biggest one that I'm concerned with. Yeah. But there's and, easy and ways I, around it. Yeah. I mean, another thing that we encourage designers to do is if they had a really good experience working with the client, to ask the client for a recommendation. Yeah. You know, be be a, a, a offer a recommendation on LinkedIn, offer a quote that they can put at the end of their case study on their portfolio site, have them be, you know, a, a reference if the if the experience went really well and make sure that they can, you know, they have the opportunity to get something else out of that experience. Mm -hmm. So I just have uh, a couple more wrap-up questions now and this is about, you know, you know, boot caps in general. So I think I I see a lot of design educators, you know, coming from traditional uh, two-year and four-year programs, seeing the rise of um, programs, uh, boot camp programs, um, as direct competition. Mm -hmm. um, do you, and, and you can't speak for other programs, obviously, but do you see that yourself as a direct competitor to a four-year institution or just a different animal? We absolutely do not see ourselves as a competitor to a university education. I, I want to be really, really clear on that. Um, we cannot substitute for four years of sustained education. Um, whether that's a design school where you get to really truly focus on a major or a liberal arts education where you get to explore, a boot camp is, is neither of those things by definition. And those are truly important, very meaningful, life-changing experiences for people in university education. Boot camps in general do some things better 
than four-year programs and in general do some things that are worse. And I believe the designation does a few more things better, but maybe a few things worse. Um, they're just fundamentally different experiences. And um, we go to pretty great lengths to make sure that applicants and sometimes parents of applicants who are you know college age or high school age, that they understand that it, it is not like comparing apples to apples. They are very, very different experiences. Uh, I do say, and I said this at uh, an AIGA Design Educators uh, conference last year, that I believe that we are more of a de facto grad school education, that you, we want you to come in with a very well-defined, well-executed set of skills that you can then learn on top of. You can build on those skills. Um, the career switchers and the career advancers that I mentioned earlier, those are the ones who really, really do great in the program. And the career starters are the ones who are, um, it, it's trickier for them to really take the most advantage of the program compared to those other types of designers in designation. You know, I, I, um, it is a massive shock to the system for people to come in with only a high school education to a boot camp program and especially designation. Uh, I, you know, I talk about all the time to my, my designers, it takes me six months at least to feel acclimated to a brand new job. And, uh, you know, imagine what it's like to have to work way quicker than that. You only get mm -hmm. six months at designation. You have to become acclimated to it much quicker. Um, there are lots of people who are just more suited to have a, a slower paced, more sustained development as a designer and as a growing adult. And university programs are just naturally going to be better suited for that experience. But the people who are older and they've identified, you know, how they work and, and um, how they need to grow, a boot camp can be really, really great for that. And they may say, I just don't have two years or four years of my life to be able to dedicate to a university education. That's where a boot camp can be really, really useful for me. Okay. So uh, the next question, I just want to kind of um, put put into context before I ask it. And, and so this is my own personal observation. Again, like this isn't like I've heard people talk about this, um, but... To me, I think it's obvious that traditional four-year design programs are not offering um, what students what they need to gain employment in the UX UI industry, mm -hmm. and I think that's why there is such a market, a huge market for uh, you know programs like designation. So let's assume. Uh, traditional programs eventually catch up to the industry and or you know giving them the skills that they need what do you think the overall future of boot camps looks like boot camps will get longer um, I mentioned designation is probably the longest designed boot camp out there we're at 24 weeks and we got to that point because we started at 10 and then moved to 12 and then 16 and then 18 and none of those were long enough. Any bootcamp who says that you can go from zero to UX designer in 10 weeks <laughs> is fooling themselves and they are trying to fool you. Um, without a ramp up, without that gradual ramp up, our phases, uh, skills just can't be picked up instantly. And the cadence of our phases is really intentional. First, you design for knowledge in design essentials. Then you design for experience in virtual. Then you design for expertise in the immersion phase. Then you focus outward and you design for others in the client phase. And finally, you focus inward and you design for 
the hardest client, which is yourself in the career phase. So that's very intentional. That ramp up is very intentional. And we need to be able to have our designers crawl, walk, and then run because you can't just go from zero to sprint in, in 10 weeks. That is physically impossible. I think you, you have so much potential to lose your designers and your students from the very beginning and never really get them to, to catch up to any of the stronger students that are in that program. So that's what we see from other boot camps. That's what we've seen a designation that we need to lengthen it. We even joke that 24 weeks isn't enough. And you, we may see in the future that we will extend it even further because there's always more basics that can be learned. There's more supplemental activity that can be had. There's more postgraduate experience and uh, development that can happen after that. So who knows where, where we might go in the future. But I think, I think boot camps will end up getting longer across the board. I also think, um, oh, do you want to talk some more about that? Nope. I makes sense. Yeah. I'm just curious where you see the future of them going. Yeah. Yeah. I think another place that they, they have the potential to go is to be less of a one size fits all experience and and being more customizable. Um, one of the things that we have really understood very quickly at designation is that everybody has a different motivation for being here. You know, they come from different, they're at different ages. They come from different background levels. They have different levels of experience. They have different skills and strengths and weaknesses. Everyone wants a, a very unique career, not just um, with a job, but with the location, the size of the company, the types of problems they want to solve, the types of snacks available in the break room, the <laughs> areas of focus. All of those things are so unique to everybody. I started requiring every designer in the program to fill out something I called a values checklist. Mm-hmm. And then asked them to answer so many questions about what they seek out of a design career. Before that, we were finding graduates that were applying to hundreds of jobs all over the world as long as they said UX or UI in the job title. <laughs> and that was so much wasted effort because yeah. they weren't really sure you know, where they wanted to go. And by zeroing in on those primary values and also the deal breakers, those designers can put way more of a direction in their job search. And I think that might spread across the bootcamp sphere. Uh, and there's gonna be more of an emphasis on bootcamp designers first identifying their values much more strongly, and then getting a curriculum that's hopefully more tailored to those values so they can really, they can get the basics and everybody get the basics together, but then a little bit more of a divergence among the cohort. Great. Um, We also, I think all of us at Designation have a hunch that the bootcamp industry might start to shrink, um, that we have reached that saturation point and, um, and needs to start, you know, some Darwinism needs to happen and the stronger ones will emerge from a very large pack. Um, boot camps have to be held responsible for the quality of their graduates. And we've already heard of a boot camp having to refund tuition for an entire cohort because no one in that cohort was skilled enough after graduation to land jobs. And if your guarantee and in entering that program is you're going to get a job then if that doesn't happen, then how are you able to justify um, having that curriculum and having those experiences for your designers? That's a, There's a, yeah, that's a heck yeah. of a motivator to make sure you're doing your job. Absolutely. It absolutely is. There's a new organization out there called the Council on Integrity and Results Reporting, CIRR, which aims to finally standardize boot camp placement metrics and other important data points because they vary really wildly across the industry. 
And in the next year or so, those boot camps who participate in CIR and designation as one of them will have a lot of data to report. And those could end up being the biggest measure of quality for, for boot camps. And I think a lot of those lower and middle tier boot camps will end up going away, especially ones that have some ethically dubious metrics. Um, so that brings me like that, that makes me think of, uh, one thing that's, um, that's unique to universities is that the whole idea of tenure. Mm -hmm. So the idea of tenure, at least the way I understand it is, you know, you go through this process, you prove, you spend your six years proving your worth to the university. And then when they tenure you, that means they can't fire you, which now means you are really free to experiment because Mm -hmm experimentation is what's going to lead to things growing and and things being better. But if you don't have the safety net of knowing that your experiment could fail, you don't experiment. So what's to, I could see like a danger for the boot camps is that the minute you find, you know, things that work, you're not going to want to change and evolve because you've got a formula that works because of the fact that you, you know, if you have, if you know the things you just said, do you, have you thought about that at all? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly something that we are aware of and we work really hard not to do. I think you could see that happen in, in the bootcamp environment for sure. And you the same way you could see it in any, design firm or office that mm-hmm. is somewhat insulated and wants to insulate themselves from the the world outside, you know, um, that can be really easy to do if you're not paying attention, if you're not um, doing some self-auditing on a regular basis, if you're not interviewing your users and the decision makers and the stakeholders and everybody who is around you as a working entity. So we, we are very much, you know, a group of people, again, these the eight of us, in, in our startup environment who, who don't want to remain stagnant. We don't want to produce, create something that is going to stay the same um, because we know that this industry changes big time. Another example of oh, that God, yeah. is um, uh, a, a year and a half ago, I think, yeah, about a year and a half ago, we were teaching Illustrator as our primary <laughs> uh, UX and UI tool. And we heard from hiring partners and recruiters that um, – you know, it's not Illustrator, it's Sketch yep. that people are working in. So we instantly, with the next cohort, said, you're, we're no longer having you learn Illustrator, you're going to learn Sketch, and therefore they're going to be much more marketable to hiring partners. So that sort of thing has to happen. We have to have our ear to the ground. All boot camps do. Yeah. Um, and if we don't, then, yeah, we are going to be um, seen as old and outdated. We're going to be less relevant. We're going to be less impactful for the people who come to the program, there's just a domino effect of, of bad things that could happen for sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, you're, you're more nimble than, than traditional four-year programs, but it doesn't have to be that way in four-year programs, but they just don't, they don't keep up. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. So Mike, before I let you go, is there anything that you want to personally talk about? Anything you, open mic, anything that I missed, whatever. Uh, I, 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 before I answer that, I I do want to go back and say one more thing about where I think, um, boot camps are going. Maybe we can edit back in there. Yeah, no worries. Um, 
I think that we're also seeing larger companies start their own boot camps yeah. as a recruitment tool for new employees and a mm-hmm. retention tool for existing employees. You know, IBM Design is the hugest example of that, where they put new employees through a required three-month boot camp to get immersed in the world of IBM and the language of their design uh, before they can return to their home offices. There are also a lot of companies that have launched innovation labs, which have that similar sprint format. It's a real fast-moving structure to pull in multidisciplinary teams to work on big problems really quickly. And those are places where we're seeing increasing amount of our graduates and UX designers in general get hired. And I think that's a practice that's going to spread across corporate America more and more, especially if companies... Uh, start to have leadership that finally understands the role that good design can play in business. Yeah, no, I've seen, I, I saw a specific one uh, for uh, Shopify. They were mm-hmm. looking for somebody to, they're building exactly what you're talking about and they were hiring somebody they wanted to lead that out. And I was like, wow, that's a, that's an interesting job that I've, that's the first I've ever seen that one for. Yeah. <laughs> so it was pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, no, there is, uh, nothing that I'm working on personally outside designation that I would want to promote. Uh, we're, we're just going full steam ahead, graduating our 400th designer, uh, in July. So we're, we're really excited about that. Um, I'm always happy to speak further about boot camps in general. If anyone out there wants to, to have those conversations, you know, we're, we're really excited to talk about, um, talk about boot camps, talk about, the experiences we want to learn from from other educators and other professionals out there. We want to improve our curriculum and hear what's going on out there because there's always room to grow. So I, I always love to have those conversations with people. That's all we have time for today on episode 46, part two of Design EDU Today. I want to thank today's guest, Mike Josie, for being so generous with his time. I want to thank the audience for listening and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and the CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. I also want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you like this podcast, consider leaving a review for it in the iTunes store and share it with your colleagues and friends. To discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit the show website at designedu.today. To keep up with new show releases, you can follow us at Twitter at designedu today, like the Facebook page, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes or Google Play Store. Finally, if you'd like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback to help improve the show, contact me through Twitter or the show's email address at hello at designedu.today. Once again, thank you for listening to Design EDU Today.